I am an Armenian by choice. At the end of the day, if my father was 100% Armenian and I am 50% Armenian, maybe Talar is 25% Armenian, if I can say that. All of us are uh, some sort of a, a cappuccino, but the levels of the coffee and the milk changes. Hello and welcome to Dispersion. Dispersion is a podcast by the Zorian Institute that analyzes and celebrates both the diverse and common experiences of diasporas living away from their homeland. I'm your host, Jan Haddo. This episode of Dispersion, we're approaching what I think is a really interesting and central aspect of the diaspora experience, cross-generational identity and continuity. Today, I'm joined by a father-daughter duo. Let me introduce them before we get started. K.M. Greg Sarkissian is a founding member of the Zorian Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1982 and in Canada in 1984. He is the chief strategist of the Institute and has been since 1990 and has been president since 1995. Along with his colleagues and board members, he has established the Genocide and Human Rights University program in partnership with the University of Toronto in Canada. As the director of economic affairs of the Institute's two journals, he initiated the partnerships with the University of Toronto Press for Diaspora, a journal of transnational studies, and genocide studies and prevention, followed by Genocide Studies International. A graduate from the University of California in 1972, he is founder and president of Byron Hill Group of Companies since 1985, Servercraft Limited Canada since 1982, and Yorkbridge Plastics Packaging since 1996. In 2019, Greg was appointed to the Order of Canada, one of the nation's highest honor systems. Talar is now a development manager at Oxford Properties, working on multi-phased mixed-use projects, master plans, and industrial developments. Prior to joining Oxford Properties, Talar worked in Boston at Banco Santana in portfolio management and credit card risk. After completing her MBA, she worked in New York at Speak Up and Margaritaville Media, both media tech startups, in COO and business development roles respectively. Talar completed a BS in economics at Babson College, a bilingual MBA from IESE in Spain, and an MSRED from Columbia University. She was class president of her MBA program, received the service award at Columbia, and is now the co-chair of the Multicultural Alliance ERG at OMERS and a member of the sustainability team at Oxford Properties. Greg Talar, thank you for being here and welcome to Dispersion. Hi, thanks for having us. And thanks for that unbelievable introduction. I don't know who you were talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Two wonderful guests who just happened to be here and happened to be willing to talk to us, which is just (laughs) wonderful. So before we hear from you both a little bit more about your backgrounds and then we get into our conversation, I'd like to start off today's episode by first raising some key questions and touching on some key points about the cross-generational experience within diasporas. And we'll, we'll both have a chance to answer to these later, but let's first think about how the study of diaspora and the study of the diasporic experience, how it's developed to incorporate a cross-generational aspect. So over the years, a number of scholars have pointed out that there is a need to adopt a generational perspective when we look at diasporas and when we think about how diaspora communities develop and how they change and how the boundaries of a diaspora community, whether that be family, gender, politics, how they undergo erosion, maintenance, and how they're reinforced. And where does family and parents and children and how does this all come into play? As most of us experience at some point in our relationship with our parents, values, beliefs, ideas, morals can differ greatly. This generational 
boundary is sometimes tested, sometimes there's shared beliefs. At the same time, within diasporas, there is often a tendency to preserve traditional values, whether these be things inherited from life in the homeland or religion, cultural, real sticking points that determine someone's role within a diaspora. So when this is compounded with the relationship we have with our parents and differing belief systems, how does this help and how does this form our identity? And what impact do these elements have on one's identity? As we've heard across other episodes, being part of a diaspora, while inherently a collective experience, is incredibly personal and it affects everyone differently and everyone has a different relationship with their diaspora and identity. And what is more personal than family and our relationship amongst ourselves? So how are familial connections shaped and or tested by varying diaspora experiences? So Greg, I'd like to start with you, but first I'd like to hear a little bit more about your identity formation, a little bit about your background and how you had to, or how you felt you needed to assimilate when you moved to the United States and then on to Canada. I was born in an Armenian family in Lebanon. So I said Armenian family because my mom and my dad were children of refugees or refugees themselves because Armenia, the ancestral homeland of Armenians, is today's Eastern Turkey. It was taken over by Turkey, and in the course of centuries, and eventually in 1915, they decided to get rid of the so-called Armenian population in the Western Armenia or Eastern Anatolia. That led to a planned genocide against the Armenian people. Now, my father lost about nine of his family members. He came from a family of nine kids. He lost all of them except his younger brother, five years old. And he was taken to a Turkish orphanage to be Turkified. And the younger brother was taken by Arabs to be, to raise as an Arab. My mother, on the other hand, she came from a family of three sisters and two brothers. And her her mother, or my grandmother, saw her, my grandfather hung. He was a prominent businessman. But his Turkish partner, the, the named Haji Halil, this man came and saved my grandmother, who was pregnant at the time, plus all the kids, plus my grandmother's sister and her kids, to his house and hid them for over six months, or seven, sorry, over seven months, to the attic of his house, fed them. Every Friday, he took the family to the mosque so that they can come down and have their baths and everything else. And after my grandmother delivered the baby, uh, he personally took the entire clan, my grandmother, her sister, all the children, to the train station and accompanied them to take them to a city called Aleppo. So basically, this Turkish man saved my family, whereas his Turkish compatriots, by the government's plan, were killing or destroying the Armenian people in the eastern Anatolia. So I grew up in a family where my father was totally orphaned, my mother was half-orphaned, but my grandmother when he did her prayers in the morning, I could hear praising Haji Halil in her prayers. And 
That's where my interest was provoked to ask her as to why in the Christian Bible she's talking about Haji Halil. So that has impacted me throughout my uh, youth to understand or try to understand about my history. What constituted me? What? Who am I? Uh, and from an from, uh, from identity perspective, born in an Armenian family with such a history, I raised in Lebanon until the age of graduating high school and then growing in Canada and the United States. So many levels of identity I adopted because after all, your identity is very much impacted by the environment you grow in. So I can define myself as an Armenian, a Lebanese, a Canadian, an American, I even uh, Anatolian to a certain extent because some of the rituals, some of the cultures, some of the music and food that we have at home is Anatolian. So it's in short, I came to realize that I am a child of the universe. And when I moved to Canada, uh, after living so, so many, in so many cultures, I came to realize that in this multicultural society, in a country where we have an incredible constitution, I felt myself that I am more Canadian than anything else. Even though I have so many levels, layers of identity, but I say to myself, I am Canadian of mumbo-jumbo background, but primarily rooted in Armenian culture. Does that answer your question? It definitely does. Talar, for you, of course, this is a bit of a different experience being born and raised in Canada, but as an individual of Armenian descent. So how has this affected your sense of belonging and what were some of the driving forces in and outside of the family that you feel contributed to your identity formation? Well, you know, I think there's there's a few things to consider here. So, for example, yeah, I grew up, I was born and raised in Canada. I... Had, I grew up in an Armenian family where my parents are quite involved in the community and they had really emphasized the importance of maintaining the heritage and the culture, learning the language um, and the importance of preserving the culture um, because of our history and because of our past and, and the trials and tribulations of the Armenian people. So that's that was a very important element of my upbringing. But I was also raised, I didn't get sent to Armenian schools, for example. I did go to a Saturday school on the weekend up until middle school, or I think I stopped right before high school. But then, you know, my, my non-familiar life was very Canadian, right? Like I had friends from all types of different backgrounds and uh, we grew up in a I went to a French school um, and and you know I would eat that you know it was school and summer camp where I got exposed to you know eating shepherd's pie for example like that's something I would never eat at home or I grew up very Canadian you know like you would go up north with your friends and play in the parks and whatnot and and having that duality I think as a kid did make that feeling of belonging a little bit challenging for me. I think that's why I was so obsessed with 
studying abroad for so long. So well, after I graduated high school, I left and moved to the States. Um, I lived in Boston for eight years and then I need, I had this urge to go to Europe. I needed to, you know, spend some time there and explore Europe as an option for me. And I, I, I was really trying to figure out who I was, where I belonged, where I felt the most comfortable. And it was a long and twisty journey to really resolve that for myself. Ultimately, you know, I ended up back in Canada and deciding to really take ownership of my Canadian identity, uh, but also my Armenian identity and all the little bits of me that make me who I am, right? Like I have, there's Lebanese influence there. There's definitely Turkish or Anatolian influence there. There's um, Spanish influence. I studied in Spain and French influence. I went to French school, so I have a lot of French humor. Um, so there are little things like anyone that make up the different pieces of my identity, but definitely in terms of the path to belong, feeling a sense of belonging, it took it took some time uh, to to develop that sense. And I think I'm still working on developing that, that sense of belonging. That's one of my questions later on. We'll get into that is mm-hmm. talking about the continuum of identity development. And I'd love that you were able to highlight some things that are defining features, food, experiences, going up north. Greg, for you, when you went to university in California, what were some things that were not maybe central to your identity formation, but that you assumed into your identity in that pivotal moment in time? You could call it assimilating or you could call it kind of settling in. Um, Would you share with us some anecdotes or, or things you remember from that time of your life? Well... I am t- you're talking about late 60s, early 70s, when I was a college kid. These were, uh, there were social upheavals in the United States because of the Vietnam War, uh, because of gender inequalities, and there were all kinds of social movements uh, that I, I was smack in the middle of it. So you're growing up in that social upheaval and and you're dealing with uh, identity crisis because now you have another layer of identity being formed. As Talara was talking about the journey, if I reflect back to those years, I can definitely say that one of the things that became part of my identity is the desire to change the world. I want to make this place the world a better place, more equal place. Uh, I would say I became more uh, humane and more human. I'm believing in more human values than nationalistic or patriotic values. So what the United States in 60s and early 70s did is to, uh, and also, of course, uh, let's not forget during that time in 1965, there was the the black people got their rights uh, reestablished. I mean, when I came to the United States, there were still signs for no blacks, no dogs in front of restaurants. Uh, so uh, civil movements that started, uh, these are all, these have all impacted my life. And eventually it was manifested uh, in me becoming one of the founders of the Zorian Institute as a human rights and genocide studies organization. So definitely, the 60s 
late 60s and early 70s had their impact on me. And I was liberated, I would say, because of that era uh, from all my uh, nationalistic idiosyncrasies. And I became to understand that my being an Armenian, an American or Canadian, should not contradict each other because the reconciliation of these three in one, it formed my identity. So that's how I could say that it's impacted me. I think that sums it up well. And that, and it goes to show how pivotal moments or in pivotal transitions, we do assume parts of what's going on around us. And that does stay with us in our identity. And Greg, you rightly brought up gender and, and what was changing on the gender landscape at that time, how we consider gender in the diasporic experience is coming up a lot in diaspora studies. So let's explore that a little bit. Talar, maybe I'll start with you. So how would you relate gender identity and the diaspora experience? So those three elements, how would you, yeah, I know that's a lot. It's a big one. <laughs> but maybe even just from your experience, how has gender and the, and being part of a diaspora or being aware of diasporas, how has that played out for you? Well, I'm trying to be thoughtful in the response here because I think again it it changed it changes over time as you get older and mature and you you see and understand things more or the way I interact with my identity as a result of being a woman and identifying as a woman has also evolved. So for example, um you know, like I'm born and raised in North America, there are certain our culture is has raised us to have a certain value set around what women can do and how we should behave and the range and the freedoms that we have career-wise or just the flexibility of what a woman can do in North America is immense, right? And of course, there's still progress to be made, but when you're comparing it to certain other societies, we're very, very fortunate. Okay, and and I think when I compare the female experience as a Canadian to a female experience as an Armenian in Armenia, and I'm not from there, right? So I'm 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 speaking from the little that I know and what I've read. It's quite different. Um, I, you know, there are certain basic, you know, even if you just look at the laws, like there's a lot of domestic abuse that still takes place um and there are you know their career progression is still challenging you know you still have to be mindful of um walking alone at night and what you're wearing in certain parts if you're walking around downtown Yerevan I mean it might be different now but when I was there say 15 years ago you definitely felt the discomfort sometimes of like walking around in the street Um, But it's interesting because it's still like a modern forward thinking society. So I'm not trying to say that it's not. But from a gender perspective, there's definitely a difference in terms of, you know, how a Canadian girl would behave versus an Armenian girl who's grown up in Armenia. Right. Um, So you can imagine as someone who's grown up in Canada, when you're seeing these discrepancies um, you're curious about them and want to learn more and, and understand these differences. But I will say for me, like, 
let's just say it's a, it's more of a traditional culture um, in terms of the heritage. And so you just have to know that and accept that about the culture and trying to obviously figure out how you fit into that. And uh, it can be challenging. There's cultural differences between the way I grew up versus probably someone in Armenia. Yeah. And I, I think you've touched on what is maybe not even just specific to the Armenian diaspora experience, that concept of traditional values, I think, mm-hmm. exists well in a lot of countries in the world. But then there's something that seems to to happen maybe when that's translated into a diasporic community. And as we touched on earlier, sometimes that is one of the biggest sticking points when we look at different generations, is those traditional values. And Talar and Greg, in the case of you, like Talar, you've never, you didn't grow up in Armenia, right? But you do still interact with those values in an interesting way. Like, you know, they're there, you're cognizant of them. Maybe they didn't play a prominent role in your life, but you're still aware that that's a different value system. And in some instances for people in the diaspora, that would be much more prevalent and maybe would be imparted on them a lot more. So I think, although you're, you're saying your experience maybe doesn't touch on that very much, I think the fact that you're aware of it um, and you know that that happens in diaspora communities and, and it's interesting to at least hear your perspective. Now, Greg, for you, mm. in your opinion, how do gender and diaspora relate? As Talar said, I wasn't born in Armenia, but definitely when I went to Armenia and I've gone there quite often, you see there is a difference in treating the woman there versus in diaspora. And, and when I say diaspora, diaspora is not a one unified area for Armenians because Armenians are from, they are all over the world. So when you talk to French Armenian or American Armenian versus uh, Persian Armenian or Lebanese Armenian or Rus- even Russian Armenian. There is a, a world of difference uh, between the behavior of these different uh, diasporic Armenians because they have been impacted by their environment that they've grown up. Uh, if, if you accept that there is no such a thing as unified one type of character of diaspora, I would say that I grew up in a family where we were trained to... Uh, view the woman equal and act accordingly too. Uh, both my parents uh, forged in me the equality of the man and the woman. And when I married my wife, who comes from a generation of three women, her I mean, ge- three generations before her, her mother, her mother's mother, they're all been uh, business people or uh, independent uh, earners. And when you look at her grandmother, who lost her husband at the age of 40 and raised three children running a small supermarket, and my mother-in-law, who was a bank officer, and my wife, as a speech pathologist, she had her own clinic running multilingual speech pathology. So I've dealt with women who are always independent, women who are career women. So. For me, gender has never been an issue because I also went to co-ed schools throughout my childhood. So I grew up with uh, female classmates, whether in Lebanon or elsewhere. And in Lebanon, it's quite uh, progress. Uh, pro- uh, Lebanon is quite progressive country when it comes to equality of the woman. Even though there is some parts of the society, especially those of 
the traditional religious societies, whether it's Christian or Muslims, they still have some restraining, uh, let's say, realities for the woman. But generally speaking, I grew up in environments where the gender never became a problem, I mean, an issue for me. You know, Dad, at the end of the day, too, you're a man. So the way that you interact with the culture is can be a different experience than a female experience, right? And I'm not saying, I'm not discrediting what you're saying because I think, I think it's all valid. I just want to be really careful of how I express my thoughts around it because I'm not trying to say that Armenian women are oppressed in any way, right? Like what I'm trying to say is, you know, part of the, one of the coolest things I remember when I went to Armenia was how impressed I was with the intellectual capability of everyone. Like everyone spoke like four or five languages. Everyone was highly, highly educated. Like the, the desire to learn and be educated is immense in that country. It's, it's overwhelming. It's, it makes you feel like you're, you're way behind. Right. And that's regardless of gender, like both men and women are highly, highly educated where I found the challenge for me. And, and it trickles down through the diaspora too, is, is really when it comes down to like the traditional value set of the Armenian culture, right? Like it's a Christian based culture with very clear, like male, female, traditional roles that uh, most people adopt. And, and I found for me, someone growing up as a Canadian, it was challenging for me to interact with that traditional aspect of the culture. And and again, this is a huge generalization. I don't think everyone is like this by any means. I've met many cases that aren't. I'm just saying it's definitely a challenge that I felt that held like that has held me back in my level of involvement in the community. And this is a challenge in any community. It's not an Armenian thing. It's not a it's a Canadian issue. It's a international issue. It's not I'm not trying to say one is worse than the other, but I just felt a certain I felt a difference for me in terms of how I could maneuver within the society as a woman versus what I could maneuver here. And that might just be a matter of like, I just don't understand the nuances there as well. Like, I don't know. And that's something I, I'm trying to figure out and resolve for myself. And I think Tola, that sums it up well. And of course, we are talking about generalizations here. But I'm really interested in that, in what you were saying about how in a way it's held, held you back, or at least it's served as some sort of barrier to partaking fully in that community and I think that's exactly what we're talking about when we look at second yeah. third generation diaspora members if I can interject here uh, communities that come to a uh, forum in Canada or elsewhere various levels of immigrations come in some of the Armenians have been here from the turn of the century some of them 50 years ago some of them 20 years ago some of them as recently as a few years ago so what happens is that the community forms what is called a ghetto, a small ghetto, where they uh, sort of turn on themselves and they have their own church schools and everything else, and they're not uh, integrate with the society, uh, the fear of assimilation. 
Now, that kind of community, I stayed away from it. And I even uh, kept my family away from it because I didn't feel that that was healthy. On the other hand, there, as the concentric circles you have, as you go outside that ghetto, you accept assimilation in, in part in the first circle, the second is more, and the third, eventually, you are integrated in the society, not necessarily 100% assimilated, but you are integrated. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to use the word ghetto ever, but I, it, it's, it's a important community that it's, it serves its purpose and I'm happy it exists. And, you know, I have many friends from many who have been raised in many different Armenian communities. And one of the things that I find amazing about their experiences, they've struggled a lot less with their sense of identity than I have because they grew up with friends that looked like them, that spoke like them, that had similar stories to them. And, and, um, that, that kind of bond and comfort when you're, I think a child and young is interesting. Like I'm, I'm seeing it now as I'm older in a slightly different light. Um, because you do have this like, oh, there are people that look like me and like have gone through shared things like me. Oh, interesting, you know? Um, but I think to my dad's point is maybe like at a certain point, it's important to broaden the perspective, but that also is completely independent from person to person based on how they choose to identify with society, right? Like you can be fully embedded in that type of community and still be a fully contributing member of the Canadian society, right? So- Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. Right? So I think I would never call it a ghetto, um, but I do think that there are differences in perhaps because of my schooling and the way that I was brought up that maybe it just doesn't fully align with that community, but those are those more like tight knit communities. And I think this is true of any community, again, diaspora, yeah. any diaspora community. I think we're talking about hybrid identities really as yeah. far as what you're, what you're getting at. And that's great. Cause that's what I want to move on to anyway, is this, and, and again, we go back to it. It's a collective experience in some way, but identities are so, so personal. And because they change, as we've already established, that they are such an individual experience. But I think what you're both getting at is, is this element of a hybrid identity. And hybrid to mean two, three, four, like you name it, however many mm-hmm. identities you have at the same time. And there is always going to be push and pull factors there. So... Talar, maybe because we're talking about it now, you can share a little bit more about like navigating this hybrid identity, however you want to define it. Because as you've said, you have lots of different cultural um, experiences that come together. And and this hybrid identity, do you think it's still developing for you? Do you feel oh your God, identity yes. changing? Yeah, I mean, I think most people would agree. It's like a constant evolution. I even now, like I've I've gone through periods where I've embraced my Armenian identity more or my Canadian identity more or just depending on what I'm exploring in that 
moment in life, right? And even, you know, just trying to figure out how I feel about what level of involvement I want within the Armenian community or like what level of involvement I want in more Canadian initiatives, right? Like there's, you're constantly trying to, you have like time is a limited resource and you have to prioritize things as your time becomes more and more precious. And so you have to become, as you get older and mature, and that time factor becomes an issue, you have to become way more laser focused on the things you really care about, right? And and that's, that's a journey to figure out where you want to focus your time and dedicate yourself. And, you know, like my father built this institute because he genuinely is deeply passionate about how genocides and diasporas impact people over time. Whereas like, I don't necessarily, I'm interested by it because I was born and raised around it, but it's not necessarily the topic I want to dedicate my life to, right? And so figuring out those key things that I want to hone in on for the rest of my life and like causes that I want to commit to have become clearer over time, but I would say I'm still kind of working on it. <laughs> and I think, again, that is intrinsically linked to the fact that it will keep developing and I'm, I'm sure it will. Greg, for you, we've talked about it a little bit already, but how do you feel that you na- you navigate your different identities and do you think they're still changing as you gain new life experiences and as you know, you work around the world? Well, I mentioned uh, a moment ago that identities are impacted by your environment that you grow in. And you take in different layers of identity, but at the end of the day, what you have started with, it's still part of you. And in my case, as I told you, I was born in an Armenian family, and when your uh, parents are survivors of the genocide, uh, even though they did not talk about the atrocities, but you can see the trauma, you can see what makes them happy, what makes, makes them sad, and indirectly that transfers to you. And when you are born in a, in a, when you are rooted in a culture, but you're born in a different country and you're absorbing all this and becoming part of you, the best way I can describe as to what you become of is to describe what Charles Aznavour, a French-Armenian singer, they asked him, are you Armenian or are you French? His answer was, I'm cappuccino. Uh, So I am part milk and part coffee, but don't ask me how much of it is a milk and how much of it is coffee. The bottom line is that I have become a cappuccino by absorbing the milk, the sugar, and the coffee, but at the end, I'm a cappuccino. So it's a struggle, but I have, once you come to the conclusion that your humanity, your identity as an Armenian or as whatever you call yourself is not in conflict and your citizenship is not in conflict, which in my case is not in conflict because I live and and I work and I interface with Canadians and Canada is an incredible place for me to live as a cappuccino. And people have accepted me to live as a cappuccino. Yes, there are 
undercurrent of racism, us versus them uh, uh, notion, etc. But at the end of the day, when you take overall big picture of Canadian Canadian identity, you see that there is all kinds of re- races, religions, cultures uh, have been mixed, and we have come to what is called Canadian identity, which is for me the cappuccino that I'm talking about. So it is not a problem for me. I'm very comfortable with where I am, with my skin, my, with my, my cultural heritage that I have. And with my Canadian adopted homeland, adopted culture, there's no conflict in me. I don't know if that answers your question. Of course it does, yeah. And it also touches on another element that we haven't talked about yet really in depth, and it is this idea of the homeland. And once again, everyone has a different conceptualization of the homeland. Greg, starting with you, because we were just talking about it, what? how do you relate to the concept of a homeland? And what do you consider? Do you consider Canada to be your homeland? Yeah, I feel... As I was not born in Armenia, so Armenia is not necessarily my homeland. It is my ancestral homeland. It has an impact on me, but but it is not my homeland. Or similarly, uh, growing up in Lebanon, etc. Yes, I have some soft spot for Lebanon, but it's not my homeland. But I'm raising in a country where the notion of homeland is not land per se. It is the ideology of what is the meaning of being Canadian. In Canada, I am living in a society where uh, our relationship with each other and our relationship with the government is governed by a constitution. I identify myself with that constitution. I identify myself with the uh, values that constitution transfers to me, and I identify with a country who is brave enough to deal with the black pages of their history, like we're seeing recently what we, how we are dealing with our treatment of our native people and aborigines, even though I was not born in here. But the fact that my own country, Canada, has the courage uh, to deal with, with uh, past history and how how we have treated these people as late as 1996. That means people who were taken to residential schools, they're, they're in their 40s or 50s now. So they can remember the, the trauma they've gone through. And I relate to that because my father was taken to a Turkish, uh, Turkish orphanage to be Turkified. He used to recite recital, uh, the Quran by heart. And at, the, and at the age of 92, when he went we became an Alzheimer patient. Surprisingly to me, he used to talk in Turkish. And I could not understand what he said, but it's it's in, it was embedded in him. So as a Canadian, I feel Canada is homeland because of its ideology, not because I'm not gonna give my life for the land that I'm protecting. I'm giving my I will I'm be willing to give my life to Canada and return to Canada for the uh, ideal ideology of the the in the in, embedded in that constitution and mm. and the relationship that the the country has a social contract with its population so that's what homeland is for me and Talar, for you when we think about 
this idea of homeland and maybe you can talk about it in relation to what we've looked at before and, and how you felt you could be part of the diaspora community. Has not having or not feeling that Armenia is your homeland defined your experience in any way? And then how do you relate to Canada as a homeland? I definitely feel like Toronto is home, like I grew up here. There is a comfort when you go, when I when I go to the following places, which is really bizarre, it's Armenia for the, the romantic history that I've been raised on. There's a comfort, like when you go to the old villages and the t- like the towns, the warmth that you're treated with and the, there's a there's a common love between Armenians like when they meet each other <laughs> because that that's inexplicable it's like you're immediately safe in a weird way um obviously you can't trust strangers all the time I'm not saying like <laughs> everyone in the world is an angel but I'm just saying you know there's a certain understanding of who you are that you don't have to explain which is which is really nice to have that kind of understanding but like I don't go to Armenia thinking okay this is where I want to live for the rest of my life I don't feel that that level of comfort there I but I do feel like a historic comfort if that makes any sense it does. It's really hard to explain that. I know. And it makes complete sense to me. And, and we have similar or in some way similar experiences with kind of diaspora and, and growing up and, yeah. and going back to a place where like for, for me, it's the United Kingdom. And there are moments and there are experiences that I only have there that are yes. feel that I, oh, this is going to sound so cliche, but they just resonate on a different level than the experiences I have in Canada and vice versa, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's like, there's nothing like you can, you can't explain to someone, oh, wow, like the feeling of standing in one of the oldest churches ever built in the world and hearing like a beautiful song being sung in those echo chambers. And it's, mm. it's like it gives you goosebumps. Those feelings gives you, give you goosebumps because it's emotional. Um, but then from a cultural level, like I feel very comfortable in Greece, for example, because culturally it's very similar to Armenia and it's more similar to like the Western Armenian culture that I'm used to, that I've been raised on rather than like the Eastern Armenian culture, which is what you experience in Armenia, right? Mm. Which was a really weird thing for me to realize uh, because I, I just, I always thought, oh, well, I'm going to go to Armenia and feel at home. But like, I felt more at home in Greece, which I always thought was so bizarre. I think that's why it's, critical and why it's interesting to talk about homeland as a concept um, yeah and to look at it as something again that not only changes it's not a it's not set in stone but as Greg rightly defined it for himself it's he identifies a set of beliefs or a moral system that he feels most at home with and that is homeland regardless of where that land really may be and I think, Talar, in many ways, it sounds like you feel shades of that as well. 
I want to add one thing that I recently experienced that like really shook me in a, in a strange way was I have a Turkish girlfriend who um, recently, you know, is, has gotten engaged and has moved or is, is moving back and forth between like, she lives in Europe, but her family lives in Turkey. And when I saw that, you know, like her friends are getting married and having kids and posting photos um, in Turkey, which in a part of Turkey where there used to be like quite a big contingent of Armenians. And it hit me really hard of like, oh my God, I'm never going to have that ability. Like I'm never going to be able to go to like my hometown where all my Armenian friends, like we all grew up together at this like really beautiful beach town and be able to like raise my kids together with them by the beach on our home, like on our homeland where we like actually like the food Mm. and the culture and the language and everything that we grew up around, like we all share and I don't need to like feel weird about it. Right. And that was a really strange, like eye-opening experience for me. And it really started opening my heart up to what what some of the indigenous population must feel in Canada at times, you know? And um, mm. I know that's a really crazy connection to make, but but because we're it's it's the dialogue in our country right now, you really start thinking like, okay, like how wow, this is this is a really layered complicated issue and it impacts so many people in ways that you would never think it does yeah Mm. and we're talking about a connection to land and I know we we just finished up saying that you can define a homeland without that but there are there are ways in which communities and groups are connected to land and I think anecdotally that was a really fascinating way and I immediately knew kind of what you were getting at and and I could feel that same yeah there's a sense of desire to to have a shared place and to be there with people who share the same history and cultural kind of markers as you um and I think again that is something that's very prevalent in diasporas from every country because you are you're leaving that land sometimes by choice and and more often than not not by choice and you you may know even as the world becomes more globalized that you may never go back there right like in your case for you Talar, like there's there's almost a yearning for it and and it will never materialize right as like morbid as that sounds but it's true well and it's it's a purely romantic notion for me like I've never mm-hmm. been there I've never been there I have you know I've always wanted to go but I just haven't been able to and and it's a. It was like, why do I feel this way? This is so weird. <laughs> Again, that's like identity developing, continuing. Well, and on on that note, I want to ask you both. We're going to end on what I think is a really fascinating question, and I encourage you to be candid with this one and and really think about what it means. And that is between one another. What is the most valuable or a handful of valuable lessons that you've learned from each other, specifically to do with identity? How has, Greg, for you, being a father impacted your identity and maybe your diasporan identity? And Talar, for you, how has growing up with Greg as your dad, how has that impacted you and what have you learned from one another? If you consider 
as to what is the identity that I wanted to pass on to my children or what part of identity that I want to pass on to my children. It wasn't the food or the music or anything. It was mainly the history and the language because when you know the history, you can, you are able to deal with your uh, identity where you are in life in a space because that you are the outcome of that historical evolution. So you will be able to understand yourself better. And if you know the language, as she said, when she went to that church, that church was carved into a mountain. And when we and they sang a liturgy which was written in 301 uh, after Christ and maybe she didn't understand a word of it but the 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 environment the music the the, the song and the the, uh, the the echoing of the music it just as she said she, she had a goosebump whereas I understood the words and I understood the meaning of that um, and it went beyond goosebumps it 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 touched my inner world. It touched my soul. So if I had to pass on to my children, I want to pass on history which is not based on myth, but in history that doesn't have any hatred in it. As I, when I spoke about Turkish genocide, I talked at the same time about the atrocities and also the Haji Halil, the Turk man, the Turkish man who held our family. But history is critical part of identity. And the language is very helpful to understand who you are. So keeping that in mind, uh, I answered your last question in the following fashion. I am an Armenian by choice. At the end of the day, if, I, if my father was 100% Armenian and I am 50% Armenian, maybe Talar is 25% Armenian, if I can say that. All of us are uh, some sort of a a cappuccino, but the levels of the coffee and the milk changes. So at the end of the day, to reconcile your human Armenian and Canadian characters or, or identities, uh, you you deal with, uh, you, you, you come to conclusion that you are going through this journey and you are accepting who you are by choice. Now, but the second part is that comes to me is what is the meaning of Armenianness? So for me, I have formulated uh, that Armenianness in myself grew to become a, uh, a human rights issue and activism. I, I am not Armenian or I do not uh, work for Armenian issues because of nationalistic issues or because of the land or anything. Is because sometimes in our history, a group of people decided that we should not be able to talk our language and be wiped out from the surface of the world. So for me, Armenianness is to act just the opposite of that, to show that they were not able to wipe me off the surface of the world. And so if I have some positive actions for Armenia, it is part of the manifestation of defying the, the, the perpetrator's uh, action of wiping me out of this, the surface of this world and depriving me from speaking my language. Like the uh, 
Aboriginal or, or native children who were taken to residential school, they were deprived of their own culture. No, it doesn't matter whose culture is better or worse, but they were deprived from their culture. For me, Armenianism is not nationalism. It's not necessarily even patriotism because I don't live there. But for me, is to reverse the 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 antidote of genocide that you, whoever you was that, to try to deprive me from using my language and try to deprive me from my heritage, my homeland, the, the way my ancestors knew, because there's 3,000 years of history and culture there. You have failed to do so. So that's why I want to pass on the history and the language to my children so that they become activists. And this activism, at the end of the day, when you compare to the trauma that the, uh, the Irish went through its deprivation of Gaelic language or the Aboriginal of, or the native of the Canadian or Armenian in Anatolia, I find it so common as a common human experience. So in short, my Armenianism is also a struggle for humanity. Talar, on this point, the things that Greg mentioned, history, language, and we can put food and music in there, do you also feel that these are important things to be part of the continuum of diaspora? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say a few points because I know it's it's like an emotional topic for me, but basically, I would say because of the way I was raised, right? Like my father started this institute, and one of the coolest things that the institute does is they have this comparative genocide course, right? That compares genocides across different cultures so like I learned from a very young age about Rwanda and the Nigerian genocide and um, Cambodia for example or you know you name it we've learned it and studied it at a young age and I was very sensitive to these histories early on and it created a big sense of empathy and understanding of other people's histories and cultures in me growing up which has allowed me to create these amazing bonds and relationships with people all over the world. So as my dad says, you know, like for him, his Armenianness is, it's kind of his way to fight for human rights in general. And that, that compassion and empathy has definitely been passed on to me for sure. I don't know if I have the same agenda and passion to like fight against genocide. Um, I'm obviously always going to be against genocide. And I do, I think I do advocate in many ways, but I don't do it as outwardly as he does. I do it in, in, in my direct relationships with people. Um, so, so it's interesting. I have never heard him express that. Um, until now. So that's why I'm reacting to it. But that empathy has definitely been created. And I've, I've just, I love pe hearing people's stories and understanding their journeys. And, and uh, it really makes you realize like, you're a, a little peanut in this universe. And whatever <laughs> problems that you're dealing with, 
are nothing compared to some of the struggles that people are really going through, right? Like, like there is some really heavy, crazy things going on around us that we just don't hear about in the news and we're all wrapped up in our worlds, right? So for me, like being an Armenian is a constant reminder of removing yourself from like your day-to-day, like whatever first world trauma, you know, to, to remembering like, wow, there's actually a lot of um, seriously impactful things happening that are changing people's worlds um, on a day-to-day basis. And to just be mindful of that and be appreciative of where you are and what you have. Um, So I think that has definitely formed I would say like it has in, 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 it has heightened my empathy for others. That also relates, I mean, to the whole concept that brings us to this podcast, which is the idea that there are commonalities and there are differences in the diaspora experience, but there is something to be said for recognizing them and bringing them to light and, and recognizing that we, we are little peanuts in a big world and everyone has different experiences on differing levels, but, really when we sit down and and talk about it there are some really striking common experiences and i think on that note we'll end and i want to thank you both so much for being here today and for bringing an anecdotal and a lived experience element to some much more theoretical ideas within diaspora studies so thank you both for joining us thank you to you thank you and thank you all for listening to this episode of dispersion a podcast by the Zorin Institute, which is a nonprofit organization that serves the cause of scholarship and public awareness relating to issues of universal human rights, genocide, and diaspora homeland relations. If you'd like to learn more about diaspora studies or about the Zorin Institute's other projects and programs, visit our website at www.zorininstitute.org, that's Z-O-R-Y-A-N, and find us across your favorite social media platforms at Zorian Institute. Next time on Dispersion, we'll be talking to two brand new guests who share with us their unique diaspora experiences, and we'll introduce you to a new concept within diaspora studies. Find Dispersion on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening.